Hi, you're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, Monday the 19th of November to Friday the 23rd of November. Uh, it's just me doing the intro this week because Jez and Jeff are slacking off. Uh, we actually forgot to do it and I've had to run back in. And here I am uh, to tell you all about our week that was. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to Breakfasters. Uh <laughs> It's it's nearly Christmas. I know it's a, it's a long way away, but also it is Christmas party season. Yes, the worst season of all. Or all the best. All the best season. Uh, <laughs> As we've discovered, these things are always closely related. Yes. The worst, the best. The best. Mm. It's polarising. <laughs> Trauma high tide. <laughs> uh, I, I was talking to a friend on the weekend and she works in, I don't know, some sort of corporate office type thing and uh, she was telling me about her Christmas party, which sounds like the worst Christmas party ever. Right. Oh. So I challenge our listeners to come up with a worse Christmas party than this. So give us a call if you, you've experienced bad Christmas parties. So hers was, uh, at first they were going to go out for an extended lunch, so they get two hours for lunch rather than their normal hour. That sounds good. Yeah. They get an extra hour oh, for lunch. Oh, that's generous. That's yeah, generous. Isn't it? Just the hour. Just, but have to come <laughs> Stop back. Stop watch starts now. <laughs> have to come back after and oh. work for the afternoon. Any, no. any party where you have to come back and work is not a party. Exactly, right. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, it's a bit, um, can't really decide where to go. Uh, so just stay at the office and they'll get food in. Uh, oh, a bit too hard to um, cater for everybody's diet requirements so they just order everyone orders uber eats themselves yeah oh my god and you get two hours to eat it that is so depressing merry christmas Is that the word? And also, can I also say, the people organising it, there was like a committee organising it. Are you it, serious? Yeah, called the Fun Club. <laughs> <laughs> the Fun Club said, oh, yeah, let's everyone get Uber Eats. You know, everyone you know, have whatever you want. We don't have to worry about anything. Uh, I feel like the next step from oh, that is you don't even stop working. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you at your, your desk, desk eating your Uber Eats. And it's like, oh, it's I said, terrible. Are, they, are they paying for the Uber Eats? No, everyone has to <laughs> buy, buy their, their own. own. And like, why? And my friends like, I just, I'm just going to bring my own lunch, right? Why? Why? Would I forced I you into getting Uber Eats. Yeah. <laughs> and you get an extra hour to eat it, and then it's just like you'll just sit, sit with each other and eat your lunch. It's like that's not, that's not a Christmas that's not party. A party. It's the worst. Why didn't they just go over to the pub or something? Oh, at least buy a pub meal. Yeah. I mean, oh, well, they thought about that, and then it was like this. Okay, so if we go, we could go to this place, but we um, ordered. Before we get there, so we have a set menu, so we know, and then so when we get there, the food's already coming out, so you so you don't waste any time, so you can go back to work. Oh, oh my god, that just is don't so, have a Christmas just party. Just don't have a Christmas party, oh. and don't call don't. Fun Club a Fun Club. <laughs> it's one step from the Fun Police. <laughs> I used to work for when I was. Just out of uni, I used to work for a professional association. I don't know if I told you about this. My job was changing their light bulbs. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. They had at least fluorescent lights and they used to blow all the time. We used to go around and change them. Anyway, um, one Christmas the boss said, oh, my son is going to come and work with you. He's just, you know, he's just at school but he needs, you know, some part-time jobs. Can you take him under your wing? Mm-hmm. And, and then that was the, the – we were just about to come up for the Christmas party. And so he came with us with the Christmas party where we were supposed to look after him and he just kept on drinking. He kept on Ooh. drinking and drinking and drinking and he got so drunk and he kept on making passes and all the other <gasps> stuff. And I was like – what? We kind of were, and you were, felt spot, like you had to be responsible, responsible for, oh my for God. this like drunken sixteen-year-old who was <laughs> lecherously trying to. Oh my God! What did you do? Just, just ignored him. Yeah, just went home. <laughs> <laughs> your child, your devil son. Nothing to do with us. Good luck with that. <laughs> we had. Um, I remember one Christmas party, like when I was working in hospitality, and they hired a, a boat to go down the Yarra. Oh my God! We've done a boat cruise. Oh, it's the... we did a scavenger hunt on the Sydney Harbour. I'll tell you how bad a scavenger. Oh, in a oh. boat. It was. Fun. How did you oh. do that? Oh, what? I don't know. We had to find. It wasn't. You know that thing where you're like half an hour into an activity and you go, I don't want. I'm not ten. I don't. Like, care. We don't want to go around crossing yeah. off finding things in the Sydney Harbour. 
And like, then just as you cruising past, you yeah, just go there was look a boat. at like there's yeah. a seagull, there's a yeah, like we spot the yeah. Oh, mate, I hope there's alcohol involved in at that. At the end, there was, but you had to get through two hours of the scavenger oh, hunt. No. <laughs> was it that? Thing and I was dressed as what was that? The uh, what was that? Oh, you know the film with with the family. Oh, I've forgotten the, the doesn't matter. I've forgotten what it's called. The one the where f- they're all in the submarine under the water. Oh yes, I know. The, like Not the, the Royal Tenor Balms, but the other one, the the Wes Cra- Wes Craven film, Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson. yeah, Wes Cra- Oh yeah, the anyway, anyway, we're all dressed as that family, the sub that submarine family. So oh. it was just terrible. Anyway, how many of you were there? About fifth to twenty. Uh, oh. And was there that thing where everyone is really cynical about activity, but there's one or two people who are really into it? Yes, and also that thing where your boss has invested a lot of money into a into a party, and they are putting a lot of pressure on you to be enjoying Come it. Come on, yes. everyone. You know, yeah. which is really scary. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you go, oh, this, you know, they're kind of like, well, look, you just really get into the spirit of things. And so you're yeah. trying to look like you're having a really good time to make them feel better for wasting yeah. money on a scavenger hunt. I mean, the fun club has put a lot of effort into this. <laughs> yes, so. a lot of effort. <laughs> I did. We did that, the cruise one was like, it, at first it's like, oh, man, this is so cool. Like yeah. just yeah. there's a bar, there's food. We're you're just hanging boat. out on a boat and drinking and having a good time and then it was like we did so many laps and it was so much drinking that all I wanted to do was get off that boat and you'd see like the the jetty coming up and you're like oh here we go we're about to get off and this is finally I need to get off this boat and then it keep sailing past and then go we're gonna do another lap and it was just like these (laughs) okay oh my god I can relate we did that once same same boss but they did it I hired a party bus and they called it the Ibiza bus and we all had to dress in white (laughs) And the Ibiza bus just kept going over the Sydney Harbour Bridge over and over and no. over. Yes. And it was hell. And I was like, get us off the Ibiza bus. And you're stuck with it. And I got bus sick. Did it Did it play that song on the Going loop? to Ibiza. Ibiza. It was in my head. That is like literally like a scene from The Good Place. Yeah, it <laughs> is. If, if someone, let's oh, see if someone oh. has a worst Christmas party. Fingers crossed for this one. Anyway, hello, you're on Triple R. Are you ringing about the worst Christmas party? Hello. There is a talking text to deliver. Oh, oh so we hear it delivered? Message live recording. Yes. Thank you. Oh, thank you, thank talking you. text. That's the weirdest <laughs> thing that's ever happened when we <laughs> don't know why you up. couldn't have just said it with your mouth rather than <laughs> your talking text. But, but anyway, hey. people were texting. Can I just tell you, though, my favourite Christmas party of all time is still this Christmas party we had as kids mm. for one of my dad's old works where we'd turn up. You'd get a ticket for a Dixie ice cream. You'd get a ticket for a soft drink. You'd get a ticket for a sausage. There'd be a ride on train that went around and around. And then after two hours, Santa would turn up on the back of a ride on mower. And, and the rider yes. mole would come screeching across the oval and he'd give us all presents. But And would he yell out, oh, I've got a present for Sarah. Yeah, yeah he goes, oh, oh. And he'd have a bell. And I just think that's actually what I want now, a Dixie cup, a sausage, yeah. Santa on a tractor, ride on train. That is good. Yeah, if you're in the fun club and you're listening, that's yeah. all we want. <laughs> you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. I used to be normal, a boy band fangirl story. It's a new movie being released on the 22nd of November, so it's later this week. Right now, though, to tell us all about it, we're joined in the studio by its director, Jessica Lesky. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. This film emerged from your own encounter with the fan culture around One Direction. Tell us about how you learned about that. So maybe like a lot of listeners, I was very sceptical of both boy bands and their fans. Um, you know, I was at high school at the height of Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Hanson, all that stuff. And not you know, for you, not for me. I thought mm. I thought the boys were ugly in the bands. Oh, I, you harsh. Know, yeah, I thought the fans were just you know going with superficial. Yeah, I, I it totally passed me by. And then I don't know, something happened when I was thirty-one, and I heard <laughs> a One Direction song, and it got stuck in my head, um, which is clever pop writing because you yes. hear it once and you already can sing along went and watched the video clip um and it's the video clip for one thing i'm sure you've all seen it yeah um, <laughs> but um it's very beatles-esque they're kind of dressed in three-piece suits and bow ties and it was just so sweet and clean cut um in a way that i don't feel like a lot of pop music really is and it just kind of sucked me in and i wanted to know more oh, wow at 31 yeah hooked into one direction <laughs> So in the film you talk to a number of different uh, 
super fans, I suppose we could call them. And you begin with Elif, who is 16 or so when you first meet her. But you also talk to Susan, a 64-year-old Beatles fan. How different and how similar are their experiences with the subcultures, I guess? Yeah, so I guess, you know, coming to a boy band love affair later in life and as a documentary filmmaker, I wanted to understand the phenomena. Um, And also being a fan, you know, at this time is very much about the internet and how you interact with other fans and even even the kind of the the guys in the band. You can tweet them or tag them on Instagram. So it did get me thinking about how had it been different to be a fan, you know, over those years. Um, so, yeah, it was really interesting to me to, to talk to fans over a few different generations and see, yes, there's lots of differences, but the similarities in um, being a young person who who gets laughed at by your parents or doesn't get treated with respect. And, um, yeah, the similarities are probably what was more interesting in the way that they um, were kind of young women in the world, whether it was the 60s or now. You also talk about the boy band archetype in, in the film and you kind of, there's certain rules that make up a boy band, starting with the original boy band, the Beatles. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yes, you know, we've made a lot of enemies um, saying the Beatles are a boy band, but we're talking just like early Beatles. They were, though. Yeah, where they're in matching outfits and they're singing I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah. Um, that's so boy bandy. Um, Who gets angry at you, boy band fans or fans of the Beatles? Beatles fans. Okay. Definitely Beatles fans. Beatles fans. Yeah, right. Um, we're not talking about their whole career, yeah. of course. Um, so, yeah, we thought it would be fun in the film to kind of do a boy band 101 um, where we have a whiteboard and we break down. Um, and actually that has annoyed a lot of people as well because they think we, we, this is like the rules, the boy band oh. rules. Ah. Um, but this is just so there's another character in the film, Dara, who's a Take That fan and she's also um, an international boy band consultant. Um, so these are her thoughts on, you know, if you were putting together a boy band now, um, what what it would need. So it's kind of looking at a rough age range, which, which would be 17 to 21 when they're starting out. Um, three, four, five members is ideal. Um, there shouldn't be a front man. That's a big difference in a boy band compared yeah. to another band. There has to be kind of a sharing of um, the roles. And, yeah, really clear kind of personalities, whether it's their actual personalities or what, you know, their manager assigns to them. There needs to be, you know, the cute boy next door one and then there's the mysterious one who never speaks in interviews. Then there's the bad boy that always leaves, like Robbie Williams. Yeah, mm. yeah. and Zane. And Zane. Yes. And the forgotten one. That's yes. One you can never remember the yeah. name of. <laughs> the other guy that's in there. <laughs> uh, and, and how does gender work in this? I mean, there are young men who are super fans, but it seems to be a different kind of experience. Mm. What What is the role of gender in, 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 I suppose, super fandom? I think a big part of it is young girls not having as many outlets to scream and get excited about things. I think that's changing now, but... I don't know, boys play sport and get out a lot of energy there. For, for girls, going to a concert it might be the first time in their lives that they've been allowed to just scream and cry and jump up and down and let out all this energy. Definitely in the 60s for the Beatles, that's what it was. You know, it was used to be you'd go to a concert and kind of sit cross-legged and with your arms in your lap and suddenly you could go to a concert and let go and, you know, be completely free. Um, so it's true. I don't think it's only... Um, looking at those boys romantically I think it's about um you know a a way to escape or having an idol who you look up to um and yeah not all the the girls and women in the film you know love these boys because they want to marry them there's a variety of um experiences and reactions to to the guys in the band but isn't that I mean that kind of takes to the point this like delegitimizing of young women's fandom like I've always been struck by how easily dismissed that age group of girls are, say, 10 to kind of 15, when they become obsessed with someone like One Direction, no one kind of appreciates... There's often this kind of um, characterisation of them as, like, obsessed teeny boppers, but not perhaps as music lovers. Why mm. do you think that is? Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's so surprising because it's, you know, if you speak to any kind of record executive, they'll be like, that is the market that we need. Like, they're such huge tastemakers, teenage girls in particular. Um I think it's that whole thing of it's very easy to dismiss anything that women 
like i think um young boys probably behave in the same way for their football teams their their posters are covered in uh, their walls are covered in posters they probably obsessively talk about the stats of their favorite players mm. um rewatch matches and we never think of that as obsessive that's kind of celebrated in our culture but there's lots of things in that behavior that that are similar um and yeah it is there's so many other things in loving a boy band um than just oh there's five cute boys yeah crooning at you yeah there is the songs um are fun and catchy and do evolve over time and become can become musically um strong there's yeah having um characters that you look up to there's that community that you build in your friendship group um there's so many things going on and that was kind of was a real motivation in making the film was um yeah i had dismissed the fans as just being screaming and crying and thought that was all it was but you know once I went online and saw how funny they were how creative they were I'd never kind of seen fan art or fan fiction and it kind of blew my mind that these fans were taking a very simple product and turning it into so many other things um you know motivated by their love for for this band um in the film uh, with the, the take fat Oh, take that, take that. <laughs> the weird Al Yankovic version. <laughs> uh, Dara spoke about um, when she was high school, she didn't tell anybody about it. Do you think fans have been more open about their love of their boy bands now or do you think it's still a, oh, this is a guilty pleasure, this is just mm. for me? I think it's changing a little bit now i think i noticed with like beyonce that was a real turning point that people felt like they could talk about beyonce as an artist and a pop singer Mm. um but before that it had to be yeah liking pop music could only be a guilty pleasure Mm. and even when i first started talking about you know loving one direction everyone around me would say but you like them ironically don't you there there was no they couldn't even conceptualize that i could genuinely like listening to this pop music that just makes you happy yeah um i think we're in a post-ironic world now though you'd almost be frowned upon if you looked down on someone for liking one direction irony is the worst Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, by the end though a number of the interviewees particularly older ones do suggest that fandom has become something of a problem for them in various in quite different sort of ways is there a point where becoming a fan goes too far and if so what what is that point yeah, I think there are blurry lines um, which, with probably any kind of group. There's always extremes of behaviour. Um, and I tried not to, you know, dwell on those. But even with the girls in the film, yeah, I think there's blurry lines when it it's a bit confusing with your real life compl- compared to your mm. fantasy life or maybe you're spending too much money on something or, um, yeah, if it distracts you a bit, which I do see online a lot, being able to kind of tweet at Harry Styles and, and the idea that he might he might see it, um, I think distracts a lot of girls at school, like see them like constantly tweeting him trying to get his attention. <laughs> now, uh, as I said, the film is being released on the 22nd of November, but you've got... Um well, at least one special event coming up at the Lido on the November 26th. Tell us about this because it sounds like a heap of fun. Yes, we've got um, a fun party coming up. They've got a um, rooftop um, place where we can screen the film and, and have a party with some boy band music and we're encouraging people to come in um, their boy band merch or really any band merch that you love because I think that's what, what people are taking away from this film is you don't have to be a boy band fan. Kind of anyone who loved anything as a teenager or or loves um, music still has can see something of themselves in the girls in these films. Sarah can rock up in her Oasis I was saying Oasis were my boy band at 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I might be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the movie's called I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. It's released on the 22nd of November. The Lido event is November 26th. We've been talking to its director, Jessica Lesky. Thank you so much for coming. Three, triple, ah. It's time for Food Interlude here on Breakfast. It's time to say good morning to Michael Harden. Good morning, Michael Harden. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. Thank good. you. What are we going to eat today? Uh, hemp. Ah, <laughs> excellent. That's what I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the form of uh, cookies. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was wondering whether it was um, when we were discussing that this was going to be uh, hemp or whether it was 
It's not hash cookies. We're not yeah, talking about hash I'm cookies. I'm giving recipes for hash brownies today. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so, so. so sidle up, kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here's some I prepared earlier. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, it's been about a year since um, hemp was legalised for human consumption in Australia. And um, it's sort of, uh, it hasn't really taken off as much as I thought that it might because it was it's marketed as this superfood, which it kind of is. Um, you only eat hemp seeds in Australia. Like that's the only way that you're allowed to eat it, and oh. um, you're not allowed. They don't. Um, they don't sell whole seeds. They have to sell just the kernel, which is sort oh. of like a like a little. Like a nut kernel in a way, a tiny little nut kernel that's got a, it has got a sort of mild nutty flavour, sort of creamy, a little bit sort of halfway between a pistachio and a macadamia. Yum. And um, and they're like they're amazing. They're, they're they've got like really incredible levels of um, omega three and omega six fatty acids. They've got um, it's about twenty five percent protein, so a similar protein to a soybean or even like eggs. Um, so high levels of that, and it's uh, also really good for the environment. How as much well. is it though? It's not that expensive. It's sort of like it's 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 um you know because it's sold in seed packets and that sort of stuff. So it's sort of like it's you'd sprinkle it on your cereal and not think that you were sprinkling gold. You know. It's, yeah. Right. So what what relationship does the hemp seed have to your marijuana plant? Well, it's part of the same family, right? As so, marijuana and hemp are both from the uh, cannabis sativa family, which is also hops are in the same for the oh. are in the same hmm. family as well. What a magical lot! Magical family. <laughs> I know, it's sort of like it's all good stuff. I love that plant. <laughs> so um, industrial hemp um, is, it's pretty much a completely different plant. It looks, the leaves look the same and stuff, but it's got, the in terms of um, the THC levels, which is the psychoactive kind of um, mm. element that makes you high in marijuana, um, it's about 0.3% THC, whereas a marijuana plant is about 30%. Uh, so okay. they say that you could smoke a whole field of industrial hemp and just get a headache, so yeah. that would be, which okay. is a bummer. And you wouldn't have um, – it wouldn't show up in, like, your blood or anything? No, but the, interestingly enough, that was one of the reasons that um, people were arguing against it when they were trying to legalise it for food was because they were going, oh, will it show up in roadside drug tests yeah. if I've had, you know, a sprinkle of hemp seeds on my cereal or, you know, some powder in my smoothie Imagine trying something. to argue that to a policeman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was just, it was in the pasta. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's yeah, it's very low levels of that, but but governments were very wary of it because it's like it's been they're, they're wary of it because of the connotations with drugs anyway. So that's what's taken it so long. It's been grown in Victoria um, for industrial purposes legally for um, since about 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, so because it has these all the plant is amazing. Like the plant is incredible. It does all these. You know, it, number one, it's really good for the environment in terms of it doesn't take a lot of water. It regenerates the soil as it grows. You can harvest it two to three times a year. It um, picks up sort of five times the amount of CO2 as a tree does. Oh my so, God. And you can use it for all these different things, like sort of the, it make, you can make biodegradable plastic from it. So, so Mercedes-Benz at the moment are using um, the hemp plant to use plastics in their cars. What a wonder plant. It is. It's a wonder plant. It's fantastic. So, um, but the reason that it's like it's got a really interesting history because the reason that it um, has this bad reputation is purely commercial reasons. In um, America in the 1930s, like it was grown as a crop for like fibre um, for clothing and paper. Um, and then it sort of went out of favour because it was very, um, it was difficult to harvest without machines. And then when machines came in, they thought, okay, this is going to be the rebirth of hemp. But then by that stage, the forestry industry and the oil industry in um, America were sort of they were had substituted for what hemp could do so they decide they um linked hemp and marijuana so all of a sudden it was this illegal plant so they made it illegal so in the 1930s in australia they sort of towed the line and it was suddenly um hemp was a plant that you it was classified as a noxious weed that must be destroyed on site so it's still oh. got those connotations makes me angry yeah mm. yeah exactly <laughs> and was it traditionally eaten it's it's always the seeds have been eaten, um, but it, like back in because it's been used in China. The plant's been used in China for ten thousand years, and um, it was mainly to do with the fibrous sort of part of it, the paper and the clothing. Um, but the seeds have always been you know part of the food. Like you know, it's been it's also been pet food 
for a lot of the time, sort oh, of wow. like, you know, for, for feeding farm animals as and well. how available is it? It's reasonably available. Like, you know, health food stores, all of them will have it. So, okay. you know, I know, like, you know, sort of wherever you've, um, you know, wherever you get your flax seed, because I know that you're mm-hmm. probably constantly eating flax seeds and yeah, chia seeds and stuff like that. Put it on my cereal all the yeah. time. Yeah. Little bag of them. In you know, my smoothies. <laughs> yep. Yep. So exactly. That. That's mm-hmm. sort of, Am I allowed know. to grow hemp then? No. Okay. No. So how, you, because, how does it work then? Um, it's you can only get industrial. Like it has to be under license, right? Um, and that's why they don't sell the whole seed, right? So seed. you're not allowed to plant it yourself. So it has to be. So they're still very strict on who can and who can't grow it. But they're trying to expand it all the time because it's sort of like there's more and more uses happening with it. So. And, and what about um, if I wanted to go off to a restaurant and have some? It, food. Where would I go, and what would I eat? Um, there, it's pretty. It's there's not a lot of them. There's some some cafes around. There is in St Kilda. There's a hemp cafe, um, so they're Ooh, using really? a lot of powder and stuff there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so and um, and then sort of the only only real sort of um, accessible way of eating at the moment, like grilled the burger burger um, chain mm-hmm. has. They do a um, pea and hemp burger. Um, which is actually yeah. really delicious. Yeah. Is that their new vegan burger? Yeah, yeah. They've got two. Ve- they've oh. got two sort of vegan burgers yeah. there, and that's one of them. I can't. The other one's beetroot or something, so it you know bleeds like meat. But um... <laughs> <laughs> so with the, the the other than like you know putting some on your cereal, what can you you know make anything else out of it? Like. You know, ground it up and yeah, yeah, because it comes as a powder. So when they with the with the seeds, they um they have to husk the seeds mm-hmm. and then they press. They also then they press the seeds for oil. So they use it like there's a hemp oil as well, which yeah. is um good for salads and stuff. It's sort of you have to be. It's it's very unstable, so you have to use it quite quickly. Oh, okay, but um but it's also apparently very good for your skin. So so Ooh. sort of good for moisturising and that sort of stuff. Um. But you can also with the so they they get the take the seeds out they crush them for oil and then all of the rest of the stuff is like that's what's um, dehydrated and made yeah, into right. powder so it's sort of for like a lot of people are using it for baking bread like you put it in bread you can put it in pasta you can sprinkle it on your cereal um, they're mixing it with water to make hemp milk so you can have it in your coffee um, oh. all of those sort of things but, wow. so is this going to be the the superfood of two thousand and nineteen do you think I think that it'll more and more it'll catch on. It's yeah. sort of like it's still pretty small at the moment. It's sort of like just trying to sort of break through. That Like people are trying to say it's the new quinoa. Yeah. Did we need a new quinoa? But, you know, <laughs> sort of like, you know, apparently so. But, uh, yeah, but I think that it's like, you know, because it's it's got so many other good things, I think it's sort of like one of those, like it's really good for you, yeah. um, you know, in terms of, and, you know, there's all these other health claims, like, you know, that, that these wellness products always do. So it's sort of like it's great for your skin and it's, apparently it's really good for your heart health and all of those sort of stuff. So they make a lot of claims. But I think the fact that it's got, you know, these high levels of protein and omega-3 in it, it's sort of like, and it's perfect, you know, for vegans, you know, to sort of like to get those kind of, you know, those that that in their diet. Oh, bring on the hemp. Mm. We're running out of time in this opening a fresh can of words, but (laughs) worms. But in the US, with the where increasingly legalisation is becoming... Mm-hmm. A, a reality is the restaurant industry doing anything about that i mean are we seeing now you know uh, restaurateurs ex- uh, um exploring edibles or you know yeah there's, there's, matching cannabis with food or yeah there's sort of there's not so much of that yet but there's more and more and more product coming on the market like you can get marijuana in so many different forms there you know so you can get it as a gummy bear you can get it as a chocolate bar you can get it as you know drinks and stuff um there's a lot of crossover between beer makers and hemp but in the u.s US at the moment they've got they've still got a law in there that you're not allowed to mix alcohol and THC. So they're going they're sort of like they're making beer and using um, the hemp seeds as equivalent to hops and they have a like it's a really similar flavor profile. It's sort of like you know it's got this sort of citrusy and kind of earthy sort of flavor profile that hops does. So it's good there. Mm. But the way they're getting around that in America a lot of the breweries are then brewing a non-alcoholic brew and chucking THC into it. So, oh. so there's sort of like in sparkling water with THC. So you can't have a drink that has both things. But it's sort of it's quite big in the so the booze people are onto it. Funnily enough, they've got, <laughs> in their offices everywhere they've got um, big posters up saying beer and grass you're on your ass yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> which is the best slogan i've heard it's fantastic it's like watch it walk out the door <laughs> thank you so much michael harden we'll talk to you again soon no thank you 
You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to Breakfasters with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, got to give a shout out to all the Year 12 kids. You're not kids anymore, are you? You're adults because you're finished. <laughs> There's one last day of exams today. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what so, a good feeling. Um, so they're probably still doing them even as we speak. Yes, or maybe on their on, on their, their way. way. Yeah, yeah. A bit oh, early. A bit early. Um, what did they get? Yeah, the final VCE exams, Indonesian, Japanese, Chinese, and Italian will be held today. Oh. So at five fifteen p.m., freedom. Oh, well done, everybody. Feeling. You did it. You did it. What, do you remember finishing your last exam? Oh, my God. Yeah, I had a really bad... Well, my last exam, I was doing politics and they didn't offer it at my school, so I had to do... I had to sit it alone in a classroom. So oh. I, I did the exam by myself. There was no one else in the school. And there's no one to turn to at the end and go, yes. And at the end of the time, I'd got a tongue ring and I was really nervous. Oh, it was, that's right. It was making my <laughs> teeth... Didn't you go to get a tattoo yeah. and it was infected? Yeah. yeah, I didn't get a tattoo. I got a tongue ring and said, remember, it was gross and it yeah. bled everywhere. And anyway, it was a disaster. And at the time, I was really paranoid that my teeth were falling out of my mouth because someone had told oh. me that that's what a tongue ring could do. And so the first thing I did oh, after... A, a distraction to <laughs> Yeah, to my phone. The first thing I did after completing my politics exam by myself in a room and then walking sadly out mm. was go straight to the dentist to see if my teeth were falling out. <laughs> As it turns out, they weren't. And everything was and everything fine. was fine, but that was how that was how I it was the worst finish to an exam period ever. Yeah. I remember finding it really anticlimactic because um, I was never yes. I, I never liked exams like I, no one likes exams, but you know what I mean. Like mm. I, I used to get myself worked into a real state um, about them, and I remember feeling that I'd completely stuffed up. Yeah. One of the first ones I did because I was so nervous. I didn't sleep at all, blah, 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 blah. And so the whole way through, I just had this whole feeling of dread that, you know, just mm. f- buggered everything up. And it's just the end. I just felt like I collapsed. You I know, I just came out of it. common. You yeah. sort of think, oh, it's going to be great. You know, everything's over. But I was just, I just felt kind of blank and empty. I think yeah. you do feel really flat because you have had so much pent-up anxiety and stuff. You're just kind of exhausted at the end of it. It's also now looking back, I remember how much that felt like the – entire world at the time yes you know so how well you were going to do or mm. not do felt like the beginning and the it. end of life yeah. almost and when then, in fact it made almost no difference at all it makes a little i mean I it's a bit of a difference but yeah. don't, don't say that to the kids going into their <laughs> oh, exams no, 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 I, no. Think I think it's a really important thing to say to, to no, kids like it it's because yeah. it, uh, totally it feels like it's the biggest thing ever or whatever but it really isn't but yeah, yeah. you know like there are just many obviously doors you want to do to well. Be, That's right. There are lots yeah. of things to do in your life. And 10 years on, all of the kids who go on about what scores they got or whatever, no one's going to remember it. Yeah. Just, I got um, 49.95. That was my TR at the time. Um, and, yeah, for me, it, studying was uh, the, the worst. I mm. really, really, really struggled with it. And now I'm making more money than both of you. So... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it just, that took a turn like that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> the break fastest is on a pay scale of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't actually, yeah, because I'm trying to think back. I don't You're know. the Carl Sandy Lance of the trio. It's, <laughs> uh, it's individual contract <laughs> But that's oh. the thing. I don't actually rem- remember... Exactly. I remember the whole process of all the exams and just hating it. And I, and I didn't I, – there's two exams that I didn't sit because I was too sick. Well, sick as in I went, oh, I've got asthma, but just couldn't – like at the time, just would have had anxiety and panic attacks yeah. and just couldn't couldn't handle it. So kind of, you know, semi-faked having asthma attacks to get out of it. Um, that's how, you know... Full on it was. Yeah. yeah. So if anyone from the education board's listening, yeah, yeah, I faked it. <laughs> you know, take, take more marks I off mean, me. So Come and get like, some of their money. <laughs> a few days later, like, you know, there were lots of parties and everything. I felt like you needed a day or so to, to recover from all yeah. of the stress. And then you start realising, well, actually, it's all over or whatever. The other thing was, I mean, it might have been different for you guys, but I really hated school. I really hated it. Mm. So I was really glad to but have that's left. The thing. Like, I loved, I loved school. Like, mm. I loved it. I 
loved going and, you know, had a good group of friends. I loved the social aspect of it. I loved, you know, I loved learning things and, and whatnot. But I just, that process of proving what you've learnt, mm-hmm. couldn't handle it. Like at the end of the day, like it's that having to write an essay or do an exam, all of that. It was just like I've just I've just read it all. Can't you just can't you believe that it's sunk in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I get it. Uh, but yeah, school is. So uh, there's a story in the um, in the Herald Sun today about um, people that are finishing up. I, I think most people have an image of what schoolies is nowadays. That everyone just goes up to the go- to the Gold Coast and yeah. gets blot out. Uh, not so, not so. Oh, really? You, yeah, oh. yeah. Did you? What do they do then? Well, there's a few people here. That it's all just about you know getting together with a group of mates, and I think with the being able to hire a house on hire a house, <laughs> rent a house like on Airbnb and stuff, it's just easier to just of, go down the coast or yeah, hang out for a while. Yeah, get a group of mates, go to Rye. There's someone that said, um, she said, I got sent a spreadsheet two days ago to plan all our meals so we can cook. Oh my god! Yeah, it's organised like. An adult. We just ate KFC for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you to to our future kids. Um, You're not kids anymore. You're adults. I did the Gold Coast thing. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of... When I was in schools, it was just kind of becoming a thing to go to the Gold Coast. And they had, like, packages at um, travel agents and stuff. And, yeah, I I don't even think my dad knew I went. Oh, really? Yeah. Where where did he think 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 you were? I don't know. Just I just don't, I actually don't think you... seen Sarah for a few days. Yeah, I don't I wonder where she is. Everyone was like, oh, my, my parents aren't letting me go there. And I was like, I'm just going to leave. Uh, but no, we... How did you get to the airport? Oh, I just... I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. I was too busy thinking about my teeth falling out of my head. Uh, no, but we... I went to... And it was so... It was exactly what you'd imagine it to be. Like, we... If friends... Parents had some timeshare apartment or something up there. Yeah. And we all stayed there. And I just went to that gross beach. I don't even know what it was called every night. Cavill Avenue, is that what it was? Oh, I don't know. Oh. And I've it was been just, to the Gold Coast a few times. It was just kids getting blotto. And it was – I think now it's a bit more – it's kind of better policed and a bit more organised, but it was just like riots on the beach and wow. kids getting drunk and making out and – yeah, it was. Was it fun oh, at the time? Uh, I had more fun just hanging out at the hotel with my mates, with my, you know, with mm. my girlfriends. Yeah. I don't think I ever enjoyed the actual at night time when we'd go to the beach. And uh, uh, for me, it wasn't really my style. You know, yeah, when you kind of yeah. go along with something and then you're like, this isn't really my bag. Mm. Uh, but I had heaps of fun just, you know, drinking with mates and not having to worry about school and. I All went that up kind to, of stuff. Yeah, I went up to Queensland as well. But um, oh, did you? I went inland. I think I went, to, <laughs> went out bush. Yeah, no, went, I think I ended up. I was in Toowoomba and just visiting because I had a friend that was up there, and I just went and. Well, yeah, it was a bit daggy, but uh, it was fun. Do no, you go anywhere? Uh, no, I, I don't. But school was school. Oh, was was not real. Yeah. I mean, people did stuff, but it wasn't. Whereas now it's just when you say school, it's everyone auto- automatically thinks of the Gold mm, Coast. Yeah. That wasn't so much the stuff. For, for me, like the thing I remember as being really fun was more when I started at uni. Yeah, right. You know, like, because back then, like... You um, found your people. Yeah, and also, like, O-Week was such a big deal. And uni was so much more relaxed then than it is now. Like, I, you know, whenever you go to a uni now, it just seems like this incredibly corporate sort of place. Mm. It wasn't like that when I went there. It was still very relaxed. O week was just beer and bands and um and also yeah that thing of you felt like you were sort of meeting people that you wanted to hang yeah, out you with. You could choose you could choose and you were sort of people. reinventing yourself a bit as well. Mm. So um oh, now I'm feeling From, all nostalgic. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm imagining a young like uptight Jeff Sparrow pulling off his tie, grabbing his red flag. Pretty much like it. finding much, his comrades. Pretty much like that. Good times. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. My Country Stories, Essays and Speeches is the title of a new book published by Black Ink. It collates the work of our next guest, journalist David Mayer. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. This is a collection of work of over 45 years. How do you go about choosing from such a vast period did you get as much of your stuff as you could together and collate from it or did you go start with pieces that you could remember well 
I started by not doing anything for months and months and months. <laughs> <laughs> it was just such a terrifying prospect of actually having to go back and read old stories. Um, I found in my attic I had um, a manila folder of clippings from the Bulletin from the 1970s. Yeah. That was a great start. Um, and not much of that got into the book. <laughs> a couple of things um, still had legs under there. Uh, and then I just... I just I went to the things I remembered, and um, so many of the things that I remembered with pride just did not stand up anymore. It's not that they were wrong; it's just that they didn't have, they didn't speak anymore. Mm. And I was, I'm, I was kind of grimly fascinated by what did and didn't um, survive. Lots of pieces which I, you know, taken huge care with um, polling details to talk about the nature of Australia in sort of 1984. They're as dead as a dodo by 1986 <laughs> because they're, they're so true of the time. Um, and so, you know, I was looking for things that were kind of still had something to say now. Um, and I was fearless about putting in material where I was completely wrong, uh, once or twice, um, and... <laughs> and um, I chopped a lot of stuff so that, um, you know, the 5,000-word article sometimes just came... There was 1,000 words that were, were still worth it. So what was the biggest surprise you found? Um, I think the biggest surprise was that those carefully crafted pieces using polling material dead, 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 dead. I thought, you know, I've got, I've got half a dozen great pieces in me here, of, you know, really diagnosing the, the, the nature of Australia. And um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, the numbers don't survive because the numbers change. Um, and then at the end of the process, I just simply had to, re- I had to throw away another 100,000 words. Oh. Yikes. Um, and, and it was, you know, I, I can't do this, I can't do this, my, my, my beautiful work, I can't do this. <laughs> and then a kind of um, a gleeful rage seized me, and I was just chucking it out. Oh. Um, it's still a fat book. Um, but at the end, there was this there was a, a last selection process with blood everywhere. What was the one piece you picked up and went, this is the greatest thing I've ever done? <laughs> I don't think it might work that way. Oh, um, come on. No. Um, look, there were things that simply had to go in, despite very worthy articles um, were forced to make way for um, a piece on my dog getting clipped, for instance, because <laughs> it seemed to speak to my own peculiar madnesses that that, that, that was in there. Um, there were pieces I'd completely forgotten. Pieces I remembered. I mean, it was, I had this notion in my mind that I'd written an absolutely sensational piece on the opening night of the Rocky Horror Show in Sydney in about 1912 or whenever it was. Um, that didn't stand up too well. <laughs> But I found when I was a kid, I'd barely been in journalism for, I don't know, 18 months or something. And I trailed around with John Gorton, the former, the former prime minister, and wrote a piece which I actually think is quite a lovely piece about this guy um, who was sort of on his uppers a bit. Um, and um, he had gone to the school I went to, which quite by chance was the school that Errol Flynn had gone. He was at school with Errol Flynn. Wow. And oh, you could not and, think of two more different and, personalities. And and I couldn't believe it. There in my writing is I ask him, was it true that he had enormous sexual equipment? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Gordon's fabulous reply, I wasn't much interested. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some of the specific pieces. You reported on the first Mardi Gras Mardi Gras. Yeah, I wasn't in it. Yeah, right. Did you have a sense at the time of how significant this was going to be? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. You knew at once. Um, I wasn't there on the Saturday night. I was there on the Monday morning when everybody was turning up in court when the police closed the court to the public and defied the magistrate's directions to open the courts. It was it was mayhem. It, and I knew that this mattered because so often when you look back through history the moments of great social change are when the authorities go too far when the authorities get way out of line with public opinion and the and the ambushing and bashing of the demonstrators that saturday night i just knew at once that this really mattered what was odd is that while it was reported it I, mean, I spent a fortnight talking to everybody I could find, demonstrators, police, etc., 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 and I put together this long narrative of what actually happened that night. 
was the only it was the only report at the time in that sort of detail about about what happened and then about the court processes after it but i knew at once you just knew that this was a turning point um and i'm and i'm very proud of that piece mm. But I was not on the march. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this, this was me making up for not being there. Uh, some of the pieces are not articles at all. Some of them, as the title suggests, are speeches. What's the secret of a good speech? How does it differ from writing an article? The voice is different, and the voice is so often better um, because it's to be spoken. It's not, you know, it's not there to be read. It has to be spoken. And when I was looking back on all this you know, heap of you know, enormous heap of material um, it was the speeches that still worked in ways that so many of the articles oh. didn't because they'd they'd been written to be to be spoken and the spoken voice is so often better than the writing voice um, but I've done a lot of speeches in the time and it's I use them I use them as um, to make me um, do research and make me come to conclusions about um, difficult and old issues um, often. And um, I found a few of those still stood up and they're in the book. Uh, how much do these pieces reflect the changes in the media landscape? I mean, I, I, I struck that some of the pieces, some of the longer pieces too, came from publications that no longer exist. You talk about the Bulletin, you were editing the National Times for a while. I have left behind me a trail of <laughs> defunct publications. <laughs> And I edited, I edited the National Times. The National Times, wonderful, wonderful. Um, the National Times was the National Times, published by Fairfax, a weekly, um, in, the, in the terms of the time, very radical weekly um, for what was essentially a Tory news organisation. And um, they did it because they had so much money, they just didn't know oh, what to do. Jesus. You know, they was, there was so much money in Fairfax um, in those days. You know... Even in the 1990s, the Saturday edition of The Age, that edition alone made a profit each week of a million dollars. And the Sydney Morning Herald, the same on Saturday. So a million dollars they spent profit. They wisely, didn't they? Um, well, <laughs> on spending on the National Times, I think they spent it very wisely. Um, but... And we were a crew that was given time and travel and opportunities, and we were we were resourced. We were expected to work very hard, but in ways that very few journalists now have the kind of resources that were taken for granted um, in the in the National Times. And these days, um, these days, the time and the training, um, the opportunities, the travel that I was given, um, very very few journalists get. But I got it. It was just, it was the shape of the trade. I'd imagine reporting on that first Mardi Gras that you talked about before would have been a really um, extraordinary thing, but has there ever been something that you've written about that's been, what's been the most difficult thing for you to approach? Well, that story was really difficult because yeah. that story was the first story I wrote which kind of indicated that I was gay. Yeah, right. Um, you know, because what, who else but a gay man would take this extraordinary interest in this um, this sort of shabby riot in, a, in, the, in the back streets of King's Cross in Sydney? Yeah. And I was very shy about it. And um, we there was a wonderful editor at the National Times called Evan Whitten, who, alas, has just recently died. And Evan's background was, you know, a sort of you know, Catholic family and a radical journalist, a great journalist. And I shyly presented this story to him and he's going through it and I'm sitting there um, and he just looked up at one point and said this is what journalism's about and was it was a, just it was one of the two best things ever said to me in my journalistic career it was one of the two and the other one was when I was just starting out as editor of the National Times and I was given I was given training by a great editor who um, said to me one day uh, David uh, uh, don't try so hard to be original, mate. You know, uh, being uh, being good's original enough. <laughs> Vic Carroll, what a fabulous thing! What a great line. Being good's original enough. <laughs> of course, Fairfax notoriously published the names and addresses of everyone who was arrested on that demonstration. Did that, did that cause a ruckus in the organisation? Yes, the it did. There was there was um, an understanding in the organisation that lives would be ruined in 1978. Your life could be ruined by the fact that you were um, identified um, in a newspaper as gay, mm. and there was um, there was a, a big argument inside the organisation. But they said, "No, we always print the names of people who are arrested. We're not going to give special privileges to these people." Um, and 
subsequently, Fairfax has apologised for that, but people's lives were um, were badly disrupted by that. Um, and part of the part of the extraordinary life that that I've watched is that you know in 1978 it was still a six-year sentence in New South Wales for having a fuck, mm-hmm. and last year. Australia said, well, you can marry each other now. Mm-hmm. And that's change. Mm-hmm. That's, that's big change. Speaking about changes, uh, a lot of the, your pieces have expressed strong opinions. When you were collating this together, were, were there many where you looked at and thought, OK, I completely disagree with that now. My position has completely changed. Oh, Jeff, I wish I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, I, I may be I may be fooling myself, but I think there's been a consistency of you know of view because um, all all the way through. I mean, I've been wrong about lots of things, um, but what's changed more is the is the kind of tone of my writing. Earlier on, I was much much more optimistic. I suppose I just thought that if you laid things out with clarity and a bit of charm and got the facts right and the arguments, it would be clear to people. And I had a lot to learn about the need to keep going and to, and the, the, the sorts of things that I wanted to see changed would, would not take, you know, two elegant articles in the National Times. It was going to, it was going to take 10 years, 15 years. Um, and I'm not as optimistic these days, except that basically I still reckon, however hard it is in this country, um, we eventually get things right. It's just that it's so hard and takes so long. Countries like New Zealand can do it. Mm. <laughs> they, you know, they, they don't tear themselves apart. Um, but Australia, wow. The politics of this country is organised to defeat the future. Mm. I feel like there's a ton of things I could ask you. But before we run out of time, one of the things that probably will surprise some people who've seen you on the inside is you write about your own serious engagement with Christianity um, early on. Can you tell us briefly touch on that and how that's shaped your views because once you've read that about your writing it does sort of it is does sort of illuminate a theme that's running through your work well as as a kid i um i as a gay kid running away from being gay i ran away you know as as so many gay kids do into the arms of the church and for four or five years i was a very very keen christian christ was going to christ was going to rescue me um and it didn't work and <clears throat> but it has left me with a lifelong interest in the role of faith in shaping in shaping public views, but also in shaping politics. I don't believe politics is simply a matter of money, though money is enormously important. But it's also things like the character of politicians, and I've write, written um, lots and lots of profiles and biographies of politicians, and it is also about the power of faith and the way in which the churches can organise, can muster public opinion to defend what are in the end so often completely indefensible positions about human behaviour, particularly around sex. And so I've followed those all my career. There was a very happy moment last year when that vote came through mm. because that was a profound defeat for people I've been reporting on for four decades. There are a few more defeats to be inflicted and they're going to be inflicted in the next year or so. Um, but that's been a, a theme of my whole career the book is My Country Stories, Essays and Speeches. It's published by Black Ink. We've been talking to its author, journalist David Ma. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. You're in triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. <laughs> uh, you are listening to uh, Breakfast. It's time for dinner review. Just... Um, Elmo, this is your first time doing dinner review. Right, so, so I guess this is where you talk about what you had for dinner, dinner last, last night. night. Yeah, yeah. But because and our dinners are so sad, we, do, we generally colour the conversation with what we did last night to excuse the right. fact that our, we have sad dinners. Yeah, well, my dinner last night wasn't particularly interesting, but I can tell you what one of my colleagues has for, for recess at, at my place of work, which oh. is a school every, yes, every day. Yeah. I work in, the, work in the country, for those who don't know. Um, he sits, he puts a, a meat pie in the microwave, and has Wait, a, is it is the meat pie already cooked? No, sorry, it's a, it's a frozen meat pie. No. Yeah. Stra- straight in the microwave, cup of uh, English brekkie tea, sits down and demolishes it in about a minute. <gasps> every, <laughs> every day? Every, every recess. So it's a ritual. That is not good. No, it's, it's not, but it's just the way it is. <laughs> 
You oh. can't really you can't really speak sense into. Does he wrap the paper. pie in a paper towel before putting it in the microwave? No, straight in. So, so it gets a bit soggy. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Doesn't crisp it up in the Not oven? Quite, no. Not even for lunch. I guess that's why he has to wash it down with the cuppa. Mm. Oh, it's real gross. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. My, so, soggy pie. Um, my, my dinner last night was uh, pasta cooked by my parents. I went to my I drove to my parents' place last night and had dinner with them. So that was nice. That's just a, just a basic sort of basil um, tomato sauce with some penne. It was lovely. I love a home dinner. Do you sit around the dinner table? Yeah, well, it's just the three of us. My parents are now empty nesters. My two younger sisters have moved out, so it was just <laughs> mum, dad, and me. So that was good. Um, good to catch up. After, I mean, I saw them last weekend, so it's a bit too brief between. Um, oh, you got nothing but, left to talk no, about, do you? We're all out. They just kept asking me about what was going to be on the show today, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't know. So hi, almost mum and dad. <laughs> uh, I I cooked dinner last night. I oh, did you? Yeah. Was what have, it, you, what was have it? you been doing for dinner? Because now that Andrew's away. Eating a lot of cups of Milo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no milk or milk? No milk, milk, just heaps of Milo, so it's kind of like a paste. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I get that. Do you ever put ice cream in it? No, but sometimes I used to have ice cream with Milo yeah. on top, yeah. but I've mm. can't, I don't really like ice cream anymore, really? unless it's minnow ice cream. What are you talking about? Oh, I just don't. It gives me a stomachache, unless it's minnow ice cream. Okay. Is that a... Is that a yeah. brand? No, Minnow is an ice cream place that's near me in Pasco Vale South, and it is. I've never had ice cream like it in my life. Wow! Yeah, it's worst. I follow the them trip. on. I follow them on Instagram. Yeah, they kind of make their flavors. I follow them on Instagram, and it sends me nuts. Updates. Yeah, updates. No, well, it sends me crazy, but it also sends me updates. I shouldn't. <laughs> ch- I, I do it so I don't buy the ice cream. So I look at it and I go, I can just enjoy looking at what they've made. Too good for the bullet tub now, are you? Is yeah. that what you're saying? No, it just gives me a stomach ache. Mm. I used to love a Neapolitan bullet tub. Do you know what I used to like doing is uh, I'd make the, a Milo Sunday after school. Oh, yeah. So you'd put a layer of Milo on the bottom, a little bit of milk, then some ice cream, and then another layer. I'd get three layers in a glass. That's a classic 90s Beautiful. treat. Isn't it? 90s? More like... <laughs> Yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> uh, what did you cook? Oh, anyway, so I cooked last night. I, I um I made I just made a fried rice. Uh, nothing fancy. I don't know how to do that though. That's yeah, good. it's not it. Not everyone can make a fried rice, Jess. Oh, thank you. Myself well, included. That's well. I, <laughs> You're in the right place. I made a <laughs> I made a fried rice, and now I'm normally um, my partner Kath does does the cooking, and she had quite a big day yesterday and had a bit on. So I was like, do you know what? How about um, you know, she was a bit stressed yesterday. And I was like, how about I'll cook you dinner tomorrow night? And I said, it might just be a frozen pizza, but <laughs> I will I will do it for Somebody's you. Somebody's got to put it in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, actually, I'll just make a fried rice. That's easy. Easy to do. You said, I don't know how to make fried rice. You're saying it like that's, an, that's a really common oh, thing. Okay. It turned out it was um, a bit more than <laughs> I had remembered. <laughs> but you just, uh, you just cut up a, a couple of... Um, Get some, cut up a couple of veggies. Like I just have, like um, I put some a bit of uh bacon and oh, that's where I stuffed up. Should have been ham. Anyway, <laughs> doesn't matter. Bacon, egg, and then some onion, and then put the, fry that up a bit, and then you add I added some carrot and celery. When's the rice go in? But the rice is cooking on the side. Oh, just boil some it. rice. Oh, right. Ball in the rice, and here's the. I went to the supermarket. And I was just, I was just going to get one of those packet mixes, the microwave rice. You know when you. Oh yeah. I thought they're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I was going to get one. I thought, oh, it'd be quick and easy dinner. I'll just grab one of those, and then I forgot. But we've got proper brown rice at home, oh. and I was just like, oh, because like just cook it. And I'm like, oh, I know you think it's really so easy, but it's so. I just stand there and stir it. I didn't oh. want to stick to the pot anyway. I I made it. And I, because it took so much effort, um, just mostly the rice. And I put it, you put it all in there, soy sauce, mix it up. Peas and corn in there as well, bit of bit of extra colour. Uh, and then um, I served it up. And I said to Kath before I gave it to because I'll be honest, sometimes she can be a bit critical of my cooking oh. or anybody else. Because she cooks mm. all the time. She's very good. She's trying to help you improve and, yes. and grow. Yes, mm. exactly that. <laughs> Uh, and I go well. Can, and I, before, when I gave it, to her, I said, "Please, like I, this took a lot of effort." 
<laughs> so if there's anything wrong with it, too Pipe bad. Down, <laughs> yeah. And then so um, I don't know what was worse though, because then she just ate it in silence. No. <laughs> and I just I kept on it's looking at her. Waiting and like first of all, I gave it to her and it sat on the table for what ages. <laughs> and then she was like, she's trying to fix the TV, get you know the internet back on the TV, and I'm just looking at her, just going, dinner's <laughs> dinner's ready. I've got dinner. She's like, oh yeah, and then she starts, and it took she took so long to eat it, and I was just like, <clears throat> uh, and she went, thank you. <laughs> and I went, oh mate, oh. And she, I went, you didn't like it. And she went, I am very appreciative of the effort that you put into this dinner. And I went, it's because you bought salt-reduced soy sauce. There's no flavour in it. <laughs> anyway, so I gave my dinner a, um, a, a probably a 6 out of 10 and Kath gave it a 4, I reckon. That's 10 in total. Thank you. Yep. I still think I'm proud of you for cooking. I Andrew's been away and Andrew cooks mostly in our household. Mm. I just like to steam vegetables, which is usually my <laughs> default. Uh, and last, but last night I had a friend who, my friend Jack, who does the vegan food business, um, she had just secretly put some food in my fridge the other day because she oh, became yes. aware of the fact that I was eating Milo for dinner. Because I just don't <laughs> care. I get to dinner yeah. time, I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered. Yeah. I'm just one of those people who won't, you know, like I love food when it's served to me, but mm. if, I, if I have to cook it, I don't really care. And so it's, I, it's not about the journey. It's about the destination. <laughs> exactly. Always, yeah. It says a lot about me, really. But um, I just had some curry that she left. she left a vegan curry in my fridge so I oh, yum. just warmed it up and ate that and then I ate a giant packet of Cobb's popcorn which I didn't need to eat afterwards. Oh man, I went to the movies yesterday and I had a lot of popcorn. Did you? Yeah. Hey, do you ever get the Cobb's you know, popcorn? I, I was about to say I can't remember the last time I ate popcorn to so be honest. Cobb's it became like popcorn came back because it's like a healthy option so they mm, do mm. it's just a lightly salted mm air-popped mm. popcorn on the shelf and they always put them on sale and then I bought it and the problem is I buy it and then I eat the whole thing and it's not meant to, you're not meant to have the whole thing. not meant to have the whole thing at once. it feels like you're eating nothing but air. Air. Yeah. And it's because it's healthy and you go, oh, it's healthy, who cares? I do, I can fix myself but yeah. it's healthy. So anyway. Better than Dorito. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.